Awesome. So welcome to the first ever CSD at WCU podcast. Woohoo! We are joined today by Bethany Anke. She is a speech language pathologist and vice president and general manager of in-health technologies. And my name is Elizabeth Grillo. I'm a faculty member in the department and I'm also a speech language pathologist. And we are joined by 33 second year graduate students who will be able to ask questions at the end, towards the end of the interview as well. So thanks for joining us. So Bethany, tell us about your current position as vice president and general manager. Uh, what are you responsible for? What do you do? Um, the short answer is I'm responsible for everything. Uh, and I do a little bit of everything. Um, so my, my current role, I've been in this um, a little two years now. I relocated from Pittsburgh to sunny California. I've been here two years and my responsibilities are that I run the in-health technologies business. Um, Freudenberg Medical is a global corporation. There are 11 business units within Freudenberg Medical um, and they all, they all make different kind of products in the medical field. Some of them make catheters, some of them make you know, needles and hypotubes and actually business has been really crazy because of COVID. So there've been, you know, that side of the business manufactures a lot of products that are going into COVID testing and vaccination. So that's kind of interesting. Um, my business is one of these 11. It's, it's considered a strategic business unit, um, which means I report to the chief executive officer of the medical business. Um, his name is Max. He's great. And I am responsible for running all of InHealth. InHealth, um, actually, I just found this out like two years ago, was short for International Health Technologies, which I actually didn't even know. Um, so that was a fun fact that I discovered uh, about a couple months ago. So InHealth Technologies manufactures silicone voice prosthesis that help patients who've been laryngectomized, which I know you guys all know, um, get some sort of voice again. Um, so in thinking about all of the different areas that the business has, we have what we call a product development department. Um, some of you may know that as like a R&D or research and development department. So we have five engineers that work in medical device engineering um, and the head of that department reports to me. We've got sales. So I have a sales team that covers the United States. I have one guy that's in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, he's my international sales manager. And I have a team of clinical specialists, which I kind of built from the ground up, which comprises five speech and language pathologists that are highly trained and skilled in laryngectomy voice restoration. And they all work for in-health. I also have a marketing department, a customer service department. Um, what am I missing? Oh, gosh, how could I forget this? Quality and regulatory. Uh, that is, and I'm sorry, my computer is beeping. Um, that is probably something that's new to some of you. Um, but they basically, they keep us in compliance with the FDA and uh, make sure that we're doing all the right things to hit high quality standards and make sure that we register our products appropriately so we could sell them in other countries. Um, and I think those are all of the departments. So all of those department heads report into me and I report into the big boss, which is the CEO. So Beth, how many people are you responsible for then? 
we have 38 people right now working for InHealth Technologies. Um, it's actually pretty small. It's actually a relatively small team. Um, and that's because we share, so we have manufacturing here in California. That's another business of Freudenberg, which is our parent company. And we share some teams together with them. So human resources is kind of what we call a shared service. So if you think of the other shared departments with um, the other side of the business, we have about 50 people. Oh, wow. And then could you tell tell us, uh, so because you, you are the head, you're it, you're the head honcho <laughs> for the entire you know, in-health technology. God, like stressing out now. <laughs> <laughs> the buck stops with you. <laughs> it does indeed. Yeah. So, so how did you develop the skills to be successful in your current position? Because you, you know, you are a clinician. You started as a speech language pathologist, like all the students in this podcast. So how did you develop the skills to be successful in this position? Um, that's a great question. And I, I think it's just through experience. Um, you know, I think coming in with the background that I had in treating patients. So um, if any of you are familiar with the products, I mean, <clears throat> we used to put them in. So when I worked in University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, I used the products for patients and treated patients with them. So I think really understanding that gives you a tremendous insight into what will make that business successful because you essentially are a customer. So I went from a customer that was purchasing these products to help patients and that gives me like a tremendous amount of perspective for what a customer wants and what a business really is, is meeting a customer need, right? So we don't, people don't go into business until they know that there's a need there. So I think when I joined InHealth, I was a, what we call a clinical specialist. So I was one of two clinical specialists that helped clinicians around the country and around the world um, troubleshoot patients. And, you know, obviously I needed my speech language background to, to help with that. And then really think everything else that kind of led to me in this position is probably curiosity and drive. Um, I always was really interested in learning other parts of the business. So if there was a meeting, I wanted to sit in on it. I just wanted to kind of soak the knowledge up and learn. Um, and that, you know, I went through some of the departments we had. And I think that I was always kind of curious about everything. And I think that just led me to learn more and more, involve myself, put your hand up. Um, even if you're not going to participate, sit there and soak things up. Um, and that led, this is my fourth job in the company. Um, but honestly, I could never have gotten here if I didn't have the speech and language pathology background that I did. Wow. So, so, so you, can you tell a little bit about, you talked a little bit about the path uh, that led you to become the vice president and gen general manager. Can you talk more about, because you said you had, I think, three or four different positions in the company. How did you eventually become, you know, the head person? Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's an interesting trajectory. I think anytime somebody from medicine or medical background goes into business, it's always kind of a, an interesting path as to how you get there. Um, so again, I started as a clinical specialist using, you know, my experience as a clinician to help other clinicians around the world doing educational programming on laryngectomy and products. Um, typically, we focus that to be a clinical, not a, a product pitch, but more of a clinical expertise. And we still do that to this day. Um, and then I kind of fell into more of an international role. The person that was um, kind of providing that same level of support to our international customers and clinicians um, resigned and 
you know, I put my hand up and I, I want to travel. I want to go over to Europe. Um, and so I, you know, volunteered to do that. Um, and the more I traveled, the more I loved it because when you're, when you're exposed to one type of healthcare in the United States and you go to another country, it's very different. Um, and I think it's fascinating to learn how other, other countries really approach their healthcare model and um, socialized healthcare systems and trying to see how they treat patients differently than you know, we might in the United States. So I was really interested in that. And so eventually I kind of became the international clinical specialist. Um, and then we decided that you know, the success of the clinical team members and the contributions were there. Um, so we got kind of a petition to see if we can hire more, right? It's a big world. You can't do it with one speech pathologist at a time. So we eventually started building our clinical program at InHealth. And that again was just hiring really great speech pathologists that have been treating patients um, in typically in kind of intense cancer centers. Like, um, we've got people from Vanderbilt, from Rush University in Chicago, um, you know, MUSC in Charleston. So we started to build our clinical team um, with these fantastic speech pathologists that really knew this population. And so then I kind of became kind of the manager of the clinical department. Um, and then we decided we really wanted to grow internationally more and do more because the company was pretty focused in the United States and still about 70% of our business is here in the United States. And we wanted to have more of a global footprint. Um, so they wanted to really dedicate hiring somebody to focus strictly on the international business. And again, I put my hand up, I wanna do that, that sounds great. So I became the international sales manager. Um, and that was my last position before I came here two years ago. Um, and what that gave me was not, it was a lot of knowledge about, you know, kind of the market, where we need to go, what we need to do to improve the business. And that gives me kind of insight into where to direct the business. Um, so I was, you know, when this position opened up, I was really happy to step into it because it, at that point I had already had you know, a lot of experience in the United States and, and internationally and the rest of it I could kind of learn as I go. Yeah. So once, once you were offered the position, because your background is a clinician, um, did you, did the company offer you business training? I mean, did you have any business experience? Did you have to do like an upper management uh, course online? Like what did they do to help the business financial aspects uh, of your uh, resume? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, I, this company has been incredibly supportive of me. I think, you know, we're kind of an odd business. Um, and the fact that we're kind of an, a niche market, we say, we're a very focused business unit um, and that we really only do ENT products. We don't do anything else. Um, so I think they kind of looked at me like, oh, a speech pathologist, you know, and <laughs> I certainly do not have an extensive finance background, um, but it was great when, you know, they really invested a lot in me. I think they, the first thing that they did, there's a lot of great internal training programs at Frenberg. So I went through two leadership development programs um, where they're basically teaching you not to be a manager, but to be a real leader um, and focusing on what it takes to develop people. So that is probably my favorite thing. I've actually now done three of those through Freudenberg themselves and they partner with business schools in Europe. Um, and then they sent me to a finance course, a finance for non-financial people is actually, it's that's the true name of the course. Who knew? Finance for not, it's like finance for dummies, only finance for <laughs> non-financial people. Um, so I went to one of those within the company 
and I went to one at University of Chicago booth. Um, but to be honest with you, I think the most amount I've learned um, about finance and the, the background and accounting and that has just been on the job. I have a tremendous director of finance. Um, she's been around for a really long time. She's my right hand. Uh, she fills in my gaps. So it's really about having a good team. So where, where I'm strong, she doesn't have the exposure and where I'm weak, she's great. So she's my finance guru. So yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. The company, company really invested a lot of time into developing me. So well, they, they saw, they recognized your talent. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you see yourself in five to 10 years in in-health? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I really want to grow the business. Um, and I think what we're really looking to do is add on to kind of our business through potentially adding on new products, um, potentially new companies that we could merge or acquire. Um, so I think my my passion is always going to be within health because it's that was my passion in my clinical practice. And it's still my passion today. I wouldn't work for, we have one competitor. I really wouldn't work for them because I don't feel the same way. It doesn't have the historic legacy that our products do. Um, so yeah, I think for me, my passion is always going to be in health. I always want to be involved in it to some degree, but I do want to grow it. I want to make sure that we're continuing to fill unmet needs for patients and ENT, um, and whether that's growing the business by acquisition or um, becoming a division head, I, I want to continue. I actually really have come to like business. Um, so obviously, because I'm in this, this position, um, it's fun to be able to direct the future. Yeah. And um, Frenberg does this, this great process called strategic planning. And so we did a, our three-year strategic plan last year, which was a little intimidating at first because it's like, you know, 200 PowerPoint slides, um, really intimidating, but it was incredibly fun and you really can map out what the future looks like for the business. And that's pretty cool. So for me, I just, I always want to keep at least some part of me focused on in-health, but I also want to grow beyond that. So from a position wise, I'm not sure, but I definitely like, you know, medical devices that help patients. Yeah. So. Awesome. The idea of the strategic plan is interesting. We all need to think about what are our own individual strategic plans? Where do you, students who are going to graduate soon, where do you see yourselves in a year? You know, you're going to be looking, completing your clinical fellowship. And then where are you going to be five, five years from now? Where are you going to be 10 years from now? Do you see yourself beginning a private practice? Do you see yourself in business aspects like Bethany has, you know, explored that aspect of the field? So Bethany, can you tell us a little bit about um, the history of in-health because it's a really important history with Dr. Blum and Dr. Singer. I don't, I'm not sure if the students know that. If I've, if I've talked about that, I don't think I have in the videos that they've watched. So can you give them a little history of that, please? Sure. Um, has anybody seen a laryngectomy patient to your knowledge? Well, they've watched some videos. That <laughs> That's a start. <laughs> I mean, they watched some YouTube videos. You know, that's better than nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Okay. Yeah. So um, as you guys know, anybody who's had their larynx removed is aphonic. They can't speak. Um, and for hundreds of years, there were people trying to give these patients voice in the 1800s going back. Nobody could find a way to give these patients their voice back. Um, that was 
relatively human sounding, um, easy, safe, replicable. So I'm sure you're all familiar with the electrolarynx, the right? So that was really with a go-to for voice restoration, that and what we call esophageal speech, which is essentially, not to make it oversimplify it, but it's basically swallowing air, burping it back up and talking on the burp. So you're using the airflow to vibrate the upper esophageal muscle sphincter, and then that causes voice. Um, so fast forward to 1978, Dr. Blom, Dr. Eric Blom is a PhD level speech pathologist. Um, and he, uh, he worked for an ENT practice and he was really interested in this patient population. Um, he had a partner, an ENT um, surgeon named Dr. Singer. So Dr. Blom and Singer, it was, um, I believe, you know, I don't, and I'm not sure whose idea it was, but came together and what they did is they really did the first safe replicable tracheoesophageal puncture, which is essentially making a surgical puncture between the posterior wall of the trachea and the anterior wall of the esophagus. And Dr. Blom, the speech pathologist was actually kind of, he calls himself a cutter and a paster. So he was cutting and pasting these one-way valves together to place in the tracheoesophageal puncture. And they published their first um, study in 1978. And that quickly became the gold standard for voice restoration. And so again, if you fast forward to where we are today, um, there's two big companies that manufacture these products. Um, there's about 3000 new laryngectomies done per year in the United States. So all of these patients, you know, in the past have been using an electrolarynx or having to struggle to learn esophageal speech now come out of the operating room with a voice prosthesis in place that allows them to communicate within days of their, their surgery. So it really was a pioneering um, innovation for these two guys to, to put together. And, you know, when you go back and you look at kind of the historic pictures, Dr. Blom was taking like a red urologic catheter and put a ball bearing in it that would move, you know, so he was really quite innovative. Now today with FDA regulations, you could not get away with that. But at the time it was pretty cool to see what they accomplished and where it really, you know, took the rehabilitation of laryngectomy, you know, patients to where we are today. So it was really quite impressive. So did Blum and Singer then partner with InHealth to mass produce these products? Is that what happened eventually? Yeah, I got all excited about the uh, the clinical thing. I forgot how they how do they get these things produced. So actually, I think they worked with Bavona to start, or and then they moved. So InHealth Technologies, again based here in California, um, was manufacturing silicone products and medical device. So Dr. Blom, um, I think they were ready to leave Bavona. It wasn't maybe they weren't taking it to the next level. So they partnered with InHealth Technologies, and again, this is so far back. I think it was called Helix Medical at the time. Um, and they've been the sole producer of Blomsinger voice restoration products since the early 80s, I think 1982. So it's really a legacy historic product. Um, and then we got our first competitor, I think in the mid 80s, which is a European based company called Atos Medical. Um, and really it's like kind of Coke and Pepsi. There's two competitors in this arena. And, you know, I like the, the historic, the history of Blomsinger because everything that they did the, how we got to where we are today, they did it the hard way, right? Mm -hmm. um, they didn't come in and improve a product. They actually pioneered a surgical procedure and invented a product to cure, you know, not to cure, but to really find a solution for these people that couldn't communicate. So for me, the history is really important. Mm -hmm. um, honoring Dr. Blom's legacy is really important. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, he's still around, still inventing. Uh, Liz has met him, I think, a couple times. Yes, and I and every time I meet him, I'm always I'm always in, in <laughs> awe and in shock. I meet Dr. Blum. I'm like, hello. <laughs> We're like, who is this crazy lady? Who, who I'm like, you know, hero worship. Hello, you're amazing. You, you've improved the lives of thousands and thousands of people across the world. Can I get your autograph? <laughs> I took him to Europe for a conference and I basically I didn't get to eat dinner because I was taking pictures of everybody with Dr. Blom and their cell phones. I was like, next. <laughs> I did not eat that night. So it was all right. It was all right. But he's like an icon, you know, especially in ENT. So yeah, it's awesome. And Dr. Singer is still practicing, I think somewhere in San, the, San, the Bay Area of San Francisco. So he's still a, a practicing ENT surgeon. So wow, yeah. look at the look at this legacy, and you're part of that legacy, Beth. I, you know, it's it's a, a lot of responsibility because it's it is very important to me. And I think um, as a speech pathologist myself, it just it really resonates with me. And so I do take it very seriously. I, I do tend to be pretty passionate when things go wrong. I'm like, what do you mean we can't have this? You know, like I want to fix it because I, I, you know, you when you work in a hospital, there's always a sense of urgency. Right. Um, when you move to business, uh, not so much. But for me, I always carry like my hospital bath in. I'm like, we've got to get this taken care of. There are patients waiting for this. So yeah. I do. I do have that, you know, that empathy and that, that love of the history that Dr. Blom, you know, created and I want to continue to honor that. So, yeah. So talk about how you became interested in working with clients with head and neck cancer. How did that, how did that come about for you? Oh, good question. You'd actually, I had to really think way back when, um, so I think every, probably everybody on this call has how I ended up in speech pathology story. Like you saw a kid that was stuttering. I, I babysat for a kid that had a cleft palate, um, went to university, somehow majored in history politics, but like was looking for a career path. And I don't know, I, I think I really went into speech pathology thinking kids, right? Um, I think that's probably, I don't know, at that time, I think a lot of people did. And my first clinical, so I don't, they know how Pitt does things, like you do a clinical rotation within your first week of really starting the master's level program. Um, and my first clinical rotation was at an acute care hospital. And I have to say, I didn't know that adult speech pathology was that medical and that focused and that kind of nitty gritty. And it was love at first sight. I, I walked into Liz, UPMC passionate with Jim Coyle, <laughs> Dr. Jim Coyle. And it yeah. was, well, I never wanted to see a kid again. I was a hundred percent adult acute care, had a neck cancer. Um, and when I saw voice restoration for the first time and changing voice prosthesis and the impact it has on patients, it was over for me. I was like, that's it. I know what I'm doing. I, you know, I had to do my clinical outplacements with kids, but I was a hundred percent adult all the way. <laughs> so I, yeah, I just, I don't know, you know, I think some things attract you and some things don't, and it's not that one's good or bad. It just, I was like, yeah, it's a perfect fit, but my mom was a nurse, right? So growing up cuts were abrasions. If you choked on water, you aspirated, um, you know, like when you grow up in that kind of setting where your childhood is like, oh, you know, you're using medical lingo right, at right. second grade, you know, because your mom's a nurse and that's what she calls them. So I think that was kind of probably, I was probably biased in that direction. I just didn't know it existed until I walked into that hospital. So, wow. you know what I was thinking this May, I have been a practicing SLP for 21 years. What? Yes. I can't you believe way that. too young, way too young. We, we go way back, you and me. 
know. We do. <laughs> so um, what training experiences did you seek to be successful in working with clients with total laryngectomies? Mm, you know, it's, that's a great question because I think that's sometimes hard to pin down because it is a relatively small population. So laryngeal cancer is less than 1% of all cancers. Um, and to find usually the hospitals that do you know, voice restoration for laryngectomized patients, they tend to be focused at university centers or VAs. So I was fortunate in Pittsburgh because, you know, working, I went to University of Pitt, Pittsburgh, like Pitt, like Liz. Um, and I think, you know, that's a major hub for head and neck cancer. It was one of the top three for a long time, top three to top 10 US News and World Report ENT practices. So they, they would pull patients from West Virginia, Ohio. So you really have a concentrated population of head and neck cancer. Um, patients, which isn't always the way, um, but they do tend to focus. So I really just found out where those patients were going and I made sure that I, you know, got a rotation there. So at, you know, Presby Hospital, your, you know, Ioneer Institute and the VA in Pittsburgh. Um, and the VA was probably what cinched it for me because I think I had a really great clinical practice leader at that VA. And uh, she just, I don't know, she just really gave me the opportunity. And I don't know if they still do this. God, I feel really old, but they used to do um, VA traineeships. So it was part of your graduate program, but the VA would pay for you to work there for a year. Yeah, and yeah. so I was lucky to apply. Luckily, there weren't a lot of adult acute, acute care competition in my class. There was only one other person. Um, everybody else was 100% peds and uh yeah, so I was able to get a, a VA traineeship, which really allowed me to focus on almost all head and neck cancer. So, yeah. And, and I, I, I think it helped that you knew right away. Like you said, when you first walked into that first semester clinical rotation, you were like, this is it. This is what I want yep. to do. So you were able to plan, you know, mm -hmm. getting you to the end point from the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, you know, it, it is where you're based. I mean, if you're in Wyoming, you're not going to see a ton of head and neck cancer patients without having to drive four hours, you know, but being in Pittsburgh, which is, you know, surrounded by three states, I was able to do that. So it was a great opportunity. And I, yeah, you're right. It was, it was a lot of planning. It, it was knowing right up front and making sure that I did all of that to get that exposure. Did you do anything else outside of the graduate program, like the Blum Singer course? What else? Did you do anything yeah. else outside of the graduate program? Yeah, gosh, I completely forgot about that. But yeah, there was um there were three people in my class that we road tripped from Pittsburgh to Indiana, probably trying to save money for gas and stay. We all shared a room in a hotel in Indianapolis, which is where Dr. Blom taught the Blom Singer voice restoration course. And I think it was my senior or my second year of grad school in the summer. So we signed up for that. We paid out of pocket for it, um, but it was worth every penny. Um, and it was tremendous. So that's one of the few, pro, one of the few courses you could actually get hands-on experience by changing a voice prosthesis. Um, which today, a lot of restrictions on that. <laughs> so yeah. probably unable to do that now, but at the time it was great. So yeah, I definitely, we did the road trip. Um, I'm trying to think if I did anything else. The traineeship at the VA, um, anytime like one of the companies like myself, my, our company would host a training I would attend yeah. if I did. So yeah, I just, I just wanted to make sure I was getting as much exposure as possible. What, do they still offer the Blumsinger course? Is that still an option? 
We did pre-COVID. Yeah. Oh, and okay. Dr. Blom's not teaching it anymore. He still would come in and do kind of like a cameo for the history because nobody can tell you the history of this like Dr. Blom can. Um, but his, the, um, the guy who replaced him in his clinical practice, uh, Byron Kubik, he would teach the, the rest of the course. And so pre-COVID, I think we were still doing it. I think we did like five or six a year. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it, it was great exposure. And again, um, we have a little bit more restriction on who can change the voice prosthesis, but you could still be in the room with somebody having their voice prosthesis changed and learn if, even if you're not the one doing it. Um, so we, yeah, they had a great group of people that would like allow students to come in and change their voice oh, prosthesis. Oh, which is, I mean, wow, what a blessing, right? To have a patient, patient do that. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, so hopefully we'll be able to resume it after you know the world recovers from COVID. So how many clinics, so do clinicians come from all over the country, from all over the world to attend the course? Yeah, um, all over the world. We had a group of surgeons, the last one that we had internationally, we would always get um, surgeons from the, the Middle East. We had a couple people from um, Saudi Arabia. We had a big group of surgeons from Croatia and Zagreb. Um, they would come about, you know, once every two years, they would bring in, you know, new surgeons to, to train with Dr. Blom. Um, so yeah, mostly it's, it's not super conveniently located. It is in Indianapolis. <laughs> so especially in the winter, you don't necessarily want to be there. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did, we did pull people from around the world mostly, but it, the last couple of years, tons of students, graduate students yeah. to the point where we were actually going to offer a set, a set, like kind of a second graduate level course. So. Oh, cool. And it's, is it like a week, is it a weekend? Is it a two to three day kind of conference? Yeah, it's one full day lecture and then a half day lecture hands on. So it's a Friday, all day Friday, half day Saturday. It used to be Saturday, Sunday, but I think we, I can't remember why we switched it, but yeah. Cool. And a lot of times, you know, as a company, we're highly vested in having people trained to take care of this patient population because it is, it's not your typical area of speech pathology. Mm -hmm. um, so we will often sponsor and give people you know, the cost of signing up for the course, sometimes we'll pay for hotel and travel um, because we want to have more clinicians be able to help these patients. So. Right, yeah, qualified, you know, people who know what they're doing, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. So what are some important tips to help the students be successful in working with clients with total laryngectomies? Mm. Yeah, don't be lured in by the symptom. Um, I think when I look back to my, the start of my clinical practice, it was always like you looked at the symptom, but you didn't dig beyond it because it seemed really superficial in a way. I, I hate to say this because again, it's oversimplifying, but changing a voice prestesis and Liz, you probably heard me say, is sometimes like plumbing. There's a leak, you take one out, you put one in. And that's kind of an old school. I think there was a lot of tribal knowledge passed down that you take a voice prosthesis out, you put a voice prosthesis in. But what I always tell people now is, you know, if a voice prosthesis isn't acting the way you think it's supposed to, it's like an awooga, awooga. It's a sign of an underlying problem. And I think, you know, kind of breaking that tradition of that tribal knowledge, take one out, put one in, and really digging deep to understand you know, what's causing that to fail. So it's really doing modified barium swallows or dropping a scope to see what's happening in the pharyngoesophagus. So I think it, it sometimes can seem too simple, but there's always something else going on there. And to give these patients the best success, you've really got to dig to the underlying problem. It's not just taking one out and putting one in anymore. So it's getting past the symptoms 
and understanding what's leading to that. Cause I think that was just not always taught in the beginning. And then, I mean, these patients are fantastic. This is such a fantastic population. Uh, love them, love them, love them. I mean, they, it was like the highlight of my day to see them. They become your family because they're seeing you every two to six months to have their voice prestigious change. You know, all their grandkids' names, sometimes they come in to the appointment. Uh, you know, you're loading a voice prestigious into a gel cap and talking about, you know, what happened at the wedding that they went to last week. These, these guys, they're just a fantastic group. So I, you know, you really get to know them personally when you see them on such a frequent basis. So I think it's just, you know, keep your heart open. They're great people and, you know, always find best way to advocate for them because they're not always, like most patients are not great at advocating for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's where you guys come in. Yeah. So I was hoping you could talk, talk a little bit about what's what, because you're in such a highly medical part of the field. Um, what is it like to be working closely with physicians, specifically ENT physicians? Because oftentimes you as a speech language pathologist will know more than the <laughs> ENT, right? About how this works. So what is that like? Talk about that experience. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't think you should be changing voice prosthesis and treating these patients if you don't have an ENT kind of as a partner that you can bounce ideas off of or go to if you need something. Um, This is, in my mind, this is not something you do in a private practice, change voice prosthesis. You've really got to have an ENT partner to help you with that. It is true that we know way more about voice prosthesis and the application of them, the insertion of them, um, troubleshooting them than ENT. And you just need to be able to have that partner so you can say, okay, here's what's happening. Here's what I think is going on. Here's what I need you to do. Um, You know, because there are things that they have to do. It could be an esophageal dilation um, to help you know, their swallowing or their voice. It could be cauterization of granuloma tissue. So you've got to have that great partnership um, however, <laughs> you know, you have to, you have to build that relationship. It doesn't, it doesn't start right away, right? Like they're not going to say, oh yes, you know, everything about the voice prosthesis. And I, as a surgeon do not, they're never going to say that. Um, so I think it's like building your credibility, one communication at a time. And I think that's what you guys really have been focusing on learning, but to partner with an ENT, you've got to be able to speak their language. Um, and they don't want to hear a 40 minute backstory about what this patient presented as two and a half years ago. <laughs> you know, they want to hear like the basic nitty gritty, what you think, how you got there and what needs to be done about it or what the options are. So I think credibility is, is critical for ENT partnerships. Um, and Liz knows this being a phenomenal voice person. You don't do a voice without having an ENT either. Right. So um, you always need that partnership. And I mean, some of my best friends, our ENTs that I met in the course of, you know, my time at the hospital and one of them texted me this morning. So, you know, it's just, you, you start out and you just work to build your credibility and eventually you get there. Yeah. Awesome. And I think we could say that translates to other aspects of the field as well. You know, we are specifically talking about ENT, but um, building your credibility and partnerships with other professionals is really relevant to wherever you decide to practice. Yeah. So Beth, what words of wisdom can you offer to the students who will very shortly be clinical fellows? What do you wish that you would have known at this point in your career that you can help them know now? Wow, that's a great question. Um, First of all, congratulations. I'm so excited for you guys. What a tremendous thing to get through school and to get into your first career. So that's 
yeah, you don't get that again, right? Your first career is your first step in your career is your first, always going to be your first step, just like your first boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, it's just, you never forget your first job. Um, be curious. I think I, you know, I spent so much time, first of all, like, you never know everything and you're never going to know everything. Um, but you have to have that passion to continue to learn. Um, you have to look things up. You have to ask questions. Um, I think sometimes we're afraid to ask questions because it makes it look like we don't know what we're doing, but that's how you learn. Right. And that's, that's medicine in particular, but it, it applies to pretty much everything. If I don't know something, I ask my boss, he's great. Um, he doesn't make me feel bad about it. So be curious, ask questions, seek resources. Um, for me, this is, I, I wish I had thought, I wish someone had said this to me. If you're too big for a small job, you're too small for a big job, you know, like roll your sleeves up. Nothing is out of your scope, right? Like, sure. You don't want to like do a trach on someone or anything like that. So there are things <laughs> out of your scope. <laughs> but, you know, raise your hand, say, Hey, I would love to go to the OR and see this, or, Hey, I would love to see how you're treating this patient. Um, and roll up your sleeves, you know, if a patient or somebody needs, I'm trying to think of kid analogies, I'm sorry, or situations, but you know, like if a patient, Liz, you know, this. if we need to do a swallow belt, patient needs to be sit up in bed. You got to do yeah. that. You got to roll up your sleeves yeah, and help right. the patient up. So like, I always think like you get a long way when you're willing to go beyond what your typical job is, you know, and, and really build colleagues there. Um, yeah, always and, questions. and I would add, um, make sure that you are respectful of everybody no matter who that person is, you know, just to the tech who's, who is, uh, you know, transitioning or moving a person, treat them like your mother or your father. You know, you want to be show respect to everybody because then yeah. they're going to respect you as well. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to know if any of the students had any questions for Beth. Do you get to unmute them or do they? Uh, no, they that? can unmute. They can go ahead. <laughs> okay. They usually so, have a lot to say. So I did. I did have a question about how you got into at first, how you got into medical, but you answered that. So that was really neat. Yeah. To, to hear about. And um, so you all, your clinical fellowship was also in medical. I'm assuming. It was, yeah, and um, it was not the perfect job. <laughs> I was there for a year until the perfect job opened up. Um, and yeah, not enough supervision, but this is when you ask questions and because not every job you're going to, you know, sometimes they're looking for someone to come in and help and they don't spend enough time training you. And that's where taking responsibility for your own learning is critical. So yeah, I didn't get a ton of supervision my first year, but I was, when I really look back, I'm so thankful I had that time within the grad program at great hospitals with great instructors and I could still reach out to them. So, yeah. So always medical. I, yeah, that first day really ruined me for kids. It was all over after <laughs> that. So I love kids, but it was just like, yeah. Cool. Is anybody interested in going into the, the medical side of things? Maybe. Do it, do it. Liz is one of the few people that really I like when I met you, you were like great at acute care, great at voice. Like sometimes you really polarize. Liz was awesome at everything. Ease, dysphagia, rehab. She did everything. Well, not in the beginning. I wasn't good at everything. <laughs> um, I remember my clinical fellowship, like the first three months. I don't know if I've told the students this yet, but 
I remember going to my office at lunch and not eating and just laying on the ground <laughs> because I was exhausted. Because <laughs> I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I was, I was just, I was physically exhausted. I was mentally exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted. Because you see a lot of bad things that that happen in acute care, you know. So I, those first couple of months, I don't know. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So <laughs> some somehow I got through it. Hey, that's a good tip. Always make time for lunch because like you're running around all that. I mean, like I say that now and I think I, I don't even know if I ate lunch today. Um, but yeah, always try to carve out some time for yourself. And that that's one other thing. I'm just going to throw this out there because this has been something that as I become more of a leader at the business, um, career life cycle management, think about that. I mean, not your, your needs are going to change in your career with your life, right? Uh, whether you get married, you're taking care of a parent, you have kids. I mean, think about how you can work on your career simultaneously. There are things that, you know, I think we're getting better as a society to think about how we're managing careers with life and finding some sort of balance. I'm not talking about work-life balance, <laughs> it's different, but like tailoring your career so you're not losing all of the training that you guys have worked so hard for. Um, when a life episode happens, because it does, it happens, right? Um, but just continuing to find ways to, you know, keep focused on your career, even when life changes, I think it's really important. Um, that's something that's been really important to me in hiring and keeping people is being flexible when things change with their life. And especially if they're a value add, you really don't, don't want to jeopardize having such an amazing employee because, you know, they need a little bit more extra time at home or some, you know, like basically some flexibility. Yeah. So that's a really good point, Beth. I want to come work for you. Ah, come work for me. It's always sunny in California. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of sunscreen though. Yeah. That's okay. That's a good trade-off. I can handle that. Um, so does anybody else have any other comments or questions for Bethany? I was curious about one thing kind of related to the whole work life conversation. Where did you move when you lived in Europe? Where were you living? I actually never relocated there, believe it or not. I traveled back and forth all the time. I looked into it. Um, I really thought about moving to London. Um, but at the time, like it's kind of a not to go into a long backstory, but like I don't think the company was fully vested and really having some, they weren't sure if this was the right path so I was like hey I'm not moving there until you guys are committed because <laughs> I'm not moving my life across the ocean for it but it worked out and then when they did commit to it I was thinking of relocating there but then I kind of just was like let's hire somebody based there so yeah but I would have I definitely was looking at London easy expensive but they speak the language kind of sort of yeah <laughs> yeah Does anybody else have any questions? Go ahead. Somebody wants to say something. I actually, talking about speaking the language made me think of this. Earlier, when you said that you would go into different like healthcare facilities in different countries, I was mm -hmm. curious, are you bilingual? Do you speak other languages? Or how have you handled that when you're in medical facilities that you don't speak the language? Yeah, great question. I mean, it it wasn't always easy. Um, the good thing is, is that English is this is the language of medicine. Um, so it is, you know, the universal language. 
Um, does that mean everybody speaks it? No. Um, you know, so it was basically when we're selling or our product into another country, we have a company that's in that country that it, like sells our products to the doctors and the hospitals. So they are always my kind of my translator if I need one. So they speak English and they speak the local language. Um, but a lot of time, I mean, most of the surgeons, I, I have to say the hardest country for me was Spain. Um, I don't speak, so first of all, I'm not bilingual. I'm an American, I only speak one language. I'm just kidding. Um, it's, it's incredibly inconvenient. I really wish I had learned another language or at least kept up with the language I did learn. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a challenge in some situations, especially Spain, because they really, people always talk about France and not speaking, no, Spain, 100% Spain, they will not speak English, no matter how, how much you beg, because I know they can, not everybody. Um, but yeah, so I usually, if, I, if they didn't speak the language or I didn't speak the language, I usually our distributor, the local business that we partnered with, they had somebody that would do it for us. So kind of a UN translator of sorts. So it's very eye-opening to see medicine in other countries. If you guys ever have that opportunity, I would highly recommend it. Cool. I saw a surgeon smoking in the operating room. Oh, so. <laughs> oh wow. To this day, so. An yeah. ENT surgeon smoking? Doing a laryngectomy. Doing a laryngectomy. Oh my gosh. That's really interesting. No, no, There's a, I mean, that was just a ridiculous example, but really eye-opening and you really, just really broadens your experience to see what goes on in other countries and how they treat their patients and what kind of differences there are, especially with the healthcare system, so different than here. Yeah. yeah. Does anybody ever have any other comments or questions for Beth? I um, did. Um, I was thinking, so like you can tell you're very passionate about what you do, but do you ever miss the direct therapy aspect of speech pathology or do you feel like you get your fill of that? in your training role? Yeah, um, I do. There are things I miss and there are things I don't miss, like working every holiday, do not miss that. Love business for not working holidays, it's amazing. Um, Cause there is no vacation time in acute care, right? Um, I do, but I think what's great about this company, uh, I didn't mention, we also have four patient consultants that work for us. Um, and I think through my travels and um, a lot of the educational programs that we did, I get a lot of exposure to patients. I do miss doing fees and modified barium swallows. I kind of like sometimes if I was seeing somebody, I'd be like, let me just take them down to the suite and do a modified myself. I'll get this over in 30 minutes. We'll solve the problem. So I do, I do kind of miss that. Um, but yeah, I think I get enough. I think I get enough exposure to, you know, patients now that I, I don't miss it entirely. Like I would, if I were in, you know, a different business. So yeah. Great question. Xander, did you have a question for Beth? Yeah, I was curious uh, what some, uh, maybe like the top three things that you look for in SLPs that you hire. Oh, good question. That is a good question. You're going to make me think about that for a minute. Um, yeah, so uh, Xander, I'm speaking kind of from my current role, but I'm going to, well, let me take myself back to hospital, Beth, um, for a sec. So Liz, what was this? We really want to go back there. <laughs> I think I was thinner for sure. Oh, so. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Climbing all those stairs in between the floors of the hospital really, really kept your yes. metabolism up. Yes. Um, you know, I think it was always the experience and, you know, I, 
you always want someone who has some degree of experience. They're never going to be perfect at anything, but like, especially for medical, right? I'm not going to hire somebody who had never set foot in a hospital before. Um, so I think experience is one, but you have to get that experience. And if you don't have it, then you need to, you know, raise your hand and say, this is what I want to do. This is where my passion is. This is where I, I'm applying for this job because I want the experience and I'm willing to put in the work for it. Um, team players, I think are really critical um, because you never know, you need someone to cover for you or you need to cover for them. You know, you gotta have someone that works really well with a team. That was always a big focus for me. Um, and then really like, what's your drive? Like what, what gets you up in the morning? What do you love about speech pathology? I, like the interview question that I always ask people is, you know, what motivates you? versus what gives you stress? What do you avoid doing at your job? What do you love to do at your job? Because really, I would plan on 30% of your job is always gonna be terrible. 70% is gonna be amazing. Always plan that 30%, you're not gonna love it, right? So what is that 30% that doesn't get you motivated to go to work in the morning? How can we work through that together? What really drives you? What do you wanna do? Um, so I think that's, those are the questions that I just try to get to know what really makes people tick. Um, because that's how you, you know, an interview, the other thing too, is an interview is two ways, you know, like mm -hmm. I love when people come in, I did two interviews last week for different positions, come in and ask me questions, ask me what, what our goals are as a business. Um, right. What do we, you know, what are, where do we want to go? Like Liz asked me, where do we want to take this business in three years? What career paths do you have for me? If there, if I'm, you know, performing, how are you guys going to develop me? You know, those are the things that make a valuable employee when they're asking kind of questions for themselves as well, because it's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, employment has to work for both parties, so. Yeah, yeah. no, that's a really good point. And I, I we are going to talk tonight, later tonight, when we're done talking with you, Beth, we're going to talk a little bit about resume and interviewing. Um, but one thing I always tell students or people who are looking for jobs, make sure you know the entity. You know, do your research if it's mm -hmm. a hospital, read their mission statement. How many beds do they have? What are their specialties? If it's a school district, same thing. You know, how many students do they have? How many SLPs are in the district? So know, know who you're interviewing with so that you have some background about them and you can impress them with questions you can ask them, like Beth is saying. Yeah. Yeah, when someone comes in, when they've done their homework, um, and it doesn't need to be perfect. You can mispronounce things. You can say, hey, I saw this on your website. I'm interested in this. Yeah, I love it when people come in and ask me questions. And I especially love when they ask me, what do you like about this company? You know, because I've been there 11 years now. So speaking Liz, I think I'm now matching clinical with business years of experience, which is super weird. <laughs> But yeah, like I think, you know, when someone comes in with those types of questions, you know, there's a lot of trying to retain talent is incredibly important. It's, it's a hard world. People job jump really easily. And I, you know, it's time consuming to constantly be hiring for someone. Um, so I think asking the questions about how I can, you know, develop within your company is completely a legitimate question these day, this day and age. In the past, not so much. But now, because employment is a two-way street, it's really important that you ask those questions for yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thanks, Beth. Does anybody have any other questions or comments? Well, this has been really, really fun. I have really enjoyed talking with you. 
Liz. I know me too. We got to do this more frequently yes. with a glass of wine maybe. So yeah. Oh, that's even better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish you guys the best of luck. Awesome. Congratulations. So fun to be out of school pretty soon and out in the workforce, you know, make the most of it. Cause it's really cool to have your first career and your first job and learn as much as you can cut yourself some slack, be nice to yourselves. It's tough. You know, when you don't know everything, you beat yourself up, especially speech pathologists. We tend to be type A. Um, So yeah, enjoy it. Have fun with it. Thank you, Beth. (laughs) All right. Thank you guys. Good luck. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks everyone. Bye.